Hi, I'm Brandon Sparks, and this is a special throwback episode of the Cination Podcast. This past month, Thomas and I, and David as well on the Patreon, we've been discussing New York Christmas movies, and we've kind of done a variety of them. And we were taking a break for the holidays because we were all traveling and we were all busy, and it was a little bit trickier, and we wanted to kind of take a break for the holidays and for January as well as we talked about in the last episode to kind of prepare for our 300th episode and kind of just finally taking a break we haven't done one in a few years but we thought it'd be a good time to kind of look back at some of our favorite episodes um that we also want to sh- we want to showcase or showcase kind of the series we did we've done so many episodes in the past few years and so many series that we love on specific ge- specific genres or specific directors and with this month i was looking back and we were like i think it'd be good to kind of revisit re- re- we re-release our episode on billy wilder's the apartment because it's a I think it actually fits well with the New York Christmas genre discussion that we had this month because we we discussed this during our Christmas series back in 2021. And weirdly, in the moment, as you'll, as you'll listen to, we, we kind of realized that like, it really wasn't fully a Christmas movie. It was more of a Christmas adjacent film, meaning Christmas is not really a massive part of the plot. It's kind of in, it's kind of in the background. It's kind of throughout. It's throughout the movie, but it's a movie that captures kind of the essence of a specific time during the holiday season, kind of the loneliness that you might see. But it also kind of, I kind of say it, it captures the uh, monotony or the loneliness or the emotions that you might have during the December twenties. I think I heard this referred to on, on social media recently, December twenties kind of like once you hit December 20th, all kind of bets are off for the rest of the year. And it's kind of that depending on where you're at in the world, like, the towns you you live in might slow down. People might go go traveling to see their family, and just things are kind of different. Work for some people will stop, and you'll kind of be in a different world. I know in my hometown is a college town, and like it, everything slows down. All the college students are gone. Everything closes, and it's kind of a weird time. And and the holidays can be lonely for some people. And it this this kind of emptiness in your towns can kind of amplify that. And because you can feel like everyone's so busy, but I'm not. And I think Billy Wilder does a great job of kind of capturing that feeling in the apartment as like tackling a romantic comedy drama. And it was fun looking back on this episode from two years ago. It was weird how our show kind of will progress and evolve over time. Uh, there's a few categories uh, or a few sections in this episode that we don't do anymore. That We kind of find a way to put into the actual show that we do. So you'll hear kind of certain things you don't usually hear all the time. But I think with The Apartment, I think it's a fun episode to look at. It's our first episode we did of Billy Wilder. And we've done a Witness of the Prosecution for our Courtroom Drama Month. And we did Sunset Boulevard this year for our, I think, Movies on Movies Month is what we did. And uh, yeah, it's he's always a filmmaker we love discussing on the show. But we felt that The Apartment would be a fun episode to for you guys to kind of look back on if you're a new listener or a recent listener. If you really haven't like gone back through our back catalog because we have a bunch of episodes, this is one that I think is worth checking out if you want to either rewatch The Apartment or watch The Apartment for the first time and kind of discover the greatness of the film and of Billy Wilder and Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine and Fred McMurray. So many great things. And also kind of see how it maybe ties into the New York Christmas genre we talked about this month without us actually discussing it on the show. So we hope you enjoy this. Uh, be sure to check out our Patreon and we hope you have a happy new year. Also, if, if you're, if you're stream, this is not streaming really anywhere besides rentals like prime and Apple, I believe. Um, but you can stream it on TCM on the TCM app. If that's still 
that's if you have that uh, it's been showing on tcm a little bit over the holiday season but we hope you yeah hope you enjoy this episode on billy wilder's the apartment Hi, and welcome to episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And welcome to our final part of our series on Christmas films. And today's movie is kind of a off-the-wall choice for a Christmas film, because uh, <laughs> it also works as a New Year's Eve movie. Um, but it, it, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to come together. It's going to come together. And that is Billy Wilder's The Apartment from 1960. So, Thomas, as I said, we're closing out our series in the Christmas genre. Uh, before we do that, can you give everyone a recap on what we've talked about this month? Yeah, so this month we've been tackling Christmas movies that could be considered quote-unquote classics, but the the main kind of parameters we've put ourselves under this month is these are the movies that that, that believe in the Christmas spirit. Uh, we, we've tackled in the past Christmas-adjacent movies, which we've discussed usually kind of take the idea of the Christmas spirit and twist it a little bit. But the three movies we've covered this month are are movies that really buy into this idea of Christmas being a time to look inside yourself, Mm -hmm. figure out, you know, kind of your own problems a la Christmas Carol. We we talked about how almost any Christmas movie (laughs) relates back to a Christmas Carol. And just this idea, this idea of introspection, looking back on your memories. And then also, reconsidering your relationships with others and and Mm -hmm. kind of who you value uh who's close to you all of this leading up to the idea that christmas is this like one last big emotional yeah pinnacle before the new year starts and i think that last part is key for today's movie Mm because i think you could say this is somewhat christmas adjacent in a way but i think that part is kind of the key to what you said. And I know like Ebert and a few people have reviewed this uh, in the past. and have talked about it's kind of ties to Christmas. And with this one, it's the idea of like, we talk about spending time, who are you going to spend time together? And with this, with the apartment, it takes place kind of like Christmas, a few days before Christmas into the new year. And it's that weird period of that week in between Christmas and new years where you kind of like, have nothing going on it feels like mm-hmm. um where you're or basically all all your week is like thinking about the new year coming up it's that kind of weird holdover period like holding pattern but like with this one it takes the idea of the spirit of christmas but it gives it and shows you characters who don't have those places to go it's very much like the lonely side of mm-hmm. christmas is that um, Jack Lemon's character, uh, CC Baxter is like in New York away from home, doesn't have any family. Um, uh, fr- uh, Fran Kubelik played by Sharon McLean, very similar thing. She's moved away, lives in New York, lives in the big city, has no one to go to. Like she has her sister and brother-in-law, but doesn't really like love them that much. So like, they're both kind of all lonely people at Christmas time. And so Christmas is kind of. It's always there, but almost like never fully discussed mm-hmm. throughout the film. It's just always kind of there, but it still plays a part. Like, I won't say it's in the background, but it definitely like you have a Christmas party, you have a New Year's Eve party. Uh, Baxter's place has a Christmas tree like over it. Like there's a lot of stuff in there regarding Christmas. It's just does. It's not the first thing you think of 
when you think of a Christmas movie because it's it's so depressing. It's kind of the thing. This <laughs> is what I think. It is. Um. So yeah. So today's movie, as we've kind of talked about, it is The Apartment from 1960. Uh. Produced, directed, co-written by Billy Wilder. It's currently available to stream on Canopy and Tubi. Um, it's available to rent on Prime and other places. I would suggest, if you can watch it, to watch it on Canopy. Because my Canopy wasn't working for some reason, because I'm, I'm, I'm back home right now. So, like, casting it to the TV wasn't doing well. So I had to rent on Prime. And I'm going to talk shit about Prime for a second. Because what it does, and I hate this, it is a lot of films... They changed the aspect ratio. And this really? movie, yes, this movie is shot, and we'll talk about it more, is shot in Panavision. It's shot in widescreen, so it's this huge kind of big, like it's a big, big movie. And it's shot that way. It's very different for the time because that's mostly shot for like epics and westerns. This is a comedy. Mm-hmm. And what Prime does is that it cuts out the widescreen and just like takes away the black bars, basically. It takes away the bars, the top and bottom to make it to where it takes up the whole screen. So it basically cuts off the edges. And so it takes away the big kind of uh, landscape of this film. And we've, I've watched several films with friends where it's the other way, where it's a four by three and they've widened it. So they've blown Mm. it up. And this is streaming, not just prime, but a lot of streaming services mess with the aspect ratio of films. And it drives me insane. And canopy for the three minutes I was able to watch it, it was in widescreen. <laughs> I, I can attest to that because I watched it on Canopy. Um, I actually started it on Tubi and then it, it forgot that Tubi has ads. So when the yeah. first ad break started, I was like, I'm going to go see if this is on Canopy or Hoopla. I've got both. And um, it was on Canopy. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's beautiful widescreen on Canopy. Thank you to the public <laughs> library system. Yep. There you go. And if you have if you have public library card, if your if your public library carries canopy, this is a, pro- a promo for canopy. Carries canopy. And you can also just tell your library, hey, can you get canopy for us? And it's free. You get nine rentals a month. And trust me, you will not watch all nine unless you're just watching <laughs> constantly. Everyone's like, oh, I only want to watch nine. But you'll with today's streaming services, you have enough. To, you can watch all. You can watch all nine. You probably never will watch all nine in one month. Um. So anyway, that's on Canopy. Uh, so The Apartment, it stars Jack Lemmon, uh, Shrem McLean, Fred McMurray, great trio of actors, all kind of in interesting transitional points in their careers. Um, Lemmon kind of becoming more of a dramatic actor with this. McLean has only been acting for about five years on movies. And Fred McMurray is kind of in the middle of his family image, Walt Disney string yeah, this of is, films. This is like... Be, be, be after absent-minded professor but before son of flubber like yeah, right it's it, somewhere i think in I, think, I think absent oh so shaggy dog is 59 oh, okay. i can't remember so i don't know if absent-minded professor comes after this um this will come into play a little bit uh later but yeah he 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 is right at the beginning of the disney run that he does mm-hmm. um so those are your, kind of your three main people Crew intro, you have uh, Billy Wilder, who's producing, directing, co-writing with his writing partner, I- IAL Diamond, one of his big co-writing partners uh, through his career. Probably, I think his, his, his closest, two people I want or one person I want to bring up, the DP, Joseph Lachelle, who at this point has shot mostly film noir, like uh, Lara and... Another movie called Roadhouse. It's not Patrick Swayze. <laughs> um, and he also shot he also shot Marty is what it was. 
about no, five years before. So he's shot. It's a wide variety. He also shot a lot of TV. Um, so, so Thomas, what is your history with the apartment? So this is one kind of when I first started getting into film studies, like none of my professors ever showed it to me, but the, mm-hmm. everyone talked about it. Yeah. Um, I, I had watched some like it hot sometime in high school and, and really enjoyed it and kind of knew I liked Billy Wilder, but everyone kept bringing this one up as this, like, it's almost like it got like overhyped to me where it kind of became intimidating. Everybody was like the apartment, yeah. the apartment. So sometime in college, I finally just sought it out and watched it on my own and, and loved it. It is, um, we can go into this more as we go, but it, it, when, when I'm talking to people, a lot of times, and you know, we talk about Hayes Code all the time yeah, on this yeah. podcast, and the way it kind of shapes how we think about the '40s and '50s because of the movies that were coming out. And this this one, it's so interesting. It's right at this time period, but this feels like one of those movies that marks yeah. the turning point. Yes, it it is made right there between the '50s and the '60s, but when you watch it, you're like, wow, this is this transitional film between the 50s and the 60s it's it's very fun sometimes when you mention things that we haven't discussed but i'm like oh that's gonna come into play in this in this <laughs> episode with the stuff i've researched because it is that it is i think sometimes we've kind of talked about i've talked about this like off the show with people about how like i think some people just think that like bonnie and clyde happens and everything changes like mm-hmm. and there's this period like you said from when the Hayes code's over in 1960 to like 67 68 when everything really really changes with movies like bonnie and clyde and and graduate and um all those films and i think this is this is the beginning of that breakdown you have things like anatomy of a murder you have things like psycho you have these movies that are starting to they have chipped away at uh the haze code and so things are changing. And then so you have this like seven year period of movies that are finally testing the boundaries now they can because the Hayes Code is, has mm. gone away in some way. And they, so this feels like that. And that and that is a big part is that this it was uh, it is definitely it harkens back to those older films. That's why it's kind of like it has this the way it's shot and done with the black and white. It's supposed to feel like an older film but it really is taking this subversive nature that is occurring in American culture at this time, or it's beginning to occur mm-hmm. in the American culture at this time. Um, yeah. With, the, with me, like we, this was one that I think I probably watched in high school when I first started really getting into movies, like you said, um, in high school, college. And this is because Billy Wilder, I know you and I really love Billy Wilder. He is, he mm-hmm. was a director that you could, he could literally tackle whatever genre he wanted to make is the thing is that he could do some like it hot, but then he also do winch the prosecution or he could do the lost weekend about alcoholism, but then do uh love in the afternoon, like a Ron or Sabrina with Audrey Hepburn and Bogart and Holden. And then you have like sunset Boulevard in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, or it's dialogue 17, which is a POW, war comedy that's i think amazing and and kind of really forgotten within his catalog so so many fantastic films and the apartment is kind of one where it's like you said it's like you hear about it but because he has so many great films it's not always the first one shown 
it's like it's like the third in line after Sunset Boulevard and Some Like It Hot. And we we did watch it because we watched it UFC together in one of our script writing classes. Um, oh, we did, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Because <laughs> they'll come into play because uh, we'll talk about this more. I'll, I'll mention it here so you remember. It's like this idea of planting and paying things off. Mm-hmm. And this movie, I think, has so many great examples of of how they plant certain things early in the film that mean nothing when you first see them. They're just kind of a thing about the character and then later come into play in a, in a nice reveal or there's a new meaning put behind it. But we'll discuss that as we go on. So what did you think this time when kind of revisiting it this, this, this past time? I just think I, I do think this is a really interesting blend, you know, like we were saying of the time period, but like Shirley MacLaine yeah. is very new school. Yep. Jack Lemmon is like a completely different school of comedy than Fred McMurray is. You know, Fred McMurray is like Disney contract family comedies for like all of the sixties. That's, that's where I knew Fred McMur- yeah, McMurray yeah. from when I was, when I was a kid, we, we went on a tear watching all those, you know, Shaggy dog and the ugly dachshund and, and all that, all that's the live action stuff from the sixties. And so it's, it's yeah, it's all this really weird blend of, of all these kind of different styles of new styles and old styles. And, and Wilder's so good at blending stuff in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we've covered what have we covered Wilder on here? I know we've done witness for the prosecution, uh, which we, we, ta- we, talked, we, we about. talked about in the courtroom drama episode, like way mm-hmm. back when um, we've never really like really dived into his work or, or any of his films as like a solo episode. This is kind of the first one. And that's kind of mm-hmm. why I wanted to do it because we've never fully explored him in any way. Cause like yeah. I would, I would love to do a Billy Wilder month, but it would be a big month and mm-hmm. audience. You can tell me if you want to hear it. Cause I don't <laughs> know how much you guys are into Billy Wilder. Like we are Wilder. Like we are, um, but he has so much to talk about. I feel. Yeah, every every time I, but with the witness to the prosecution, like we've said before, it's it's comedy, it's mystery, it's thriller, all kind of rolled into one. Sunset Boulevard is obviously the sweeping drama. Mm-hmm. It's got these comedic elements to it as well, but mm-hmm. it's also kind of terrifying. Yeah. Um, and and so this one is is one that's done so well, and I think especially right on the heels of some like it hot, you know, with with lemon coming in. So every time I feel like. I catch more and more subtleties every time I come into it. And it is just this incredible blend that I feel like only Wilder could do at the time. I think, yeah. I think you know, as, as the years gone on, have gone on, it's become more common to say like, Oh, I'm going to take a little bit of this genre, a little bit of yeah. this, this genre. But this was a time when, when you didn't know really, you made a drama, yeah. you made yeah. a comedy and then you, you stayed in your lane. Yeah. That's it. You, yeah. You, you didn't mix the two things. You didn't mix kind of, you said genres together and that's kind of what he always did. Like I said, Stock 17 is literally a, a movie about people who are in a German prisoner of war camp. And it's like a it's a it's like almost like a, a workplace comedy <laughs> in moments, but also super serious. Like there's there's a whole mystery to it of like there is a spy that's 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 leaking information from their barracks to the Nazis about people who are trying to break. Like it's it's a very <laughs> suspenseful film but also really funny <laughs> so it's like there's so much that happens in all of his films and the the apartment like i said it's kind of the pinnacle he he's really in and i'll say this kind of in a minute he's in a big run this is kind of the, the kind of peak of it in, ter- in, in terms of hollywood standards 
uh, uh, of his career. And yeah, I think he is just a director who, and I think with this movie, when watching it this time, and we'll, we'll definitely discuss it, uh, it feels still as relevant today as it did back then. No, oh, yeah. it's, it's about like work workplace environments and and kind of uh, in some cases, the treatment of women in workplace environments and how there is this uh, patriarchal system, this boys club that kind of controls everything. And, and questioning the whole like, uh, you know, give every give give yeah. everything your all give it to the system. Yeah. Uh, and, and you'll get rewarded at some point questioning that whole belief. Yeah, you have you have that you have this kind of question like, oh, is this American dream of moving to the big city and having this job worth it all? Like, is it is it worth my sanity at the end of the day um, to hold this job? And and again, it also goes into this kind of like with the with the with the um, kind of dynamics with men and women in the workplace of how Shirley McLean is someone who probably should be somewhere else in the company besides an elevator operator mm-hmm. or how like all the secretaries are kind of just stuck here working for these men when they probably know more <laughs> than the men that are in charge. Um, and, and yeah, I think there's just a lot of stuff that still rings true today. And I think that's just the way Wilder, works is i think he always because of his almost cynical nature is that we we as a society have become cynical i think a lot of the times we just with the things we've seen in our lives and so it's very it's very um relatable mm-hmm. uh with with these characters he creates um but yeah we'll discuss all that so let's dive into the history of how this got into production the year was 1959 and billy wilder was just coming off one of the biggest hits of his career that year, he released Some Like It Hot, starring Marilyn Monroe, Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, and Wilder had been on this massive hot streak, as we said, receiving a total of nine Oscar nominations across the 1950s, and one win for a screenplay uh, for Sunset Boulevard. And right before Some Like It Hot, Wilder had made three films that were all released in 1957. Spirit of St. Louis, Love in the Afternoon, and Witness for the Prosecution, all in the same year. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But with a new decade on the horizon, Wilder decided to tackle an old idea he had now that he had now the culture of America was beginning to change. So let's rewind to 1945 when Billy Wilder saw David Lane's masterpiece Brief Encounter about a man and Uh woman who are on the verge of an affair. Anna and I actually talked about this in the 100th episode at one point. She talked about how like Brief Encounter helped inspire this movie. And at a pivotal point in the film, Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson, who are these this man and woman who meet in London during World War II and are both married, they start to have kind of this, this friendship that develops into something a little bit more where they're on the verge of having this physical sexual affair. And at this pivotal moment in the film, Trevor Howard takes uh, Celia Johnson to his friend's apartment in London so that their spouses won't find out about them. Wilder was struck with an idea about what happened to the poor friend that had to wait outside in the cold as his good old buddy was having sex in his bed. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, that could be an interesting character. But Wilder knew that American censors would not be up for an idea like this, so he had to table it. 
Some people also believe that Wilder was inspired by a famous Hollywood scandal in the 1950s. Um, as Cran Longworth and Vanessa Hope have discussed this past year on their podcast, Love is a Crime, about uh, Joan Bennett, who we've actually discussed in the show before mm-hmm. during our Fritz Lang episode, because she was in a bunch of his films. Uh, she was basically involved in the scandal where she was having an affair while being married. Both of them were married, having an affair with this big Hollywood agent by the name of Jennings Lang. No relation to Fritz Lang. But Jennings apparently would, would use an apartment that belonged to one of his lower employees at the agency he he helped run. And that's how they would meet up and and have their affair. Lang, the scandal part, Lang would later be shot, but not killed by Joan's husband, Walter Wanger, in a parking lot in 1951. <laughs> um, good podcast, Loves a Crime. If you like Hollywood history and everything, go listen to it. It's a Vanity Fair podcast. Um, so in 1960, Wilder believed that Hollywood was finally ready for this idea about this rom-com dramedy about infidelity. Uh, it seems like because of Wilder's acclaim, both the box office and critically, United Artists decided to make the picture and there wasn't much conflict to get it made like it was like there would have been in the 1940s because Hollywood's Hayes Code, as we were saying, was quickly crumbling and Wilder's The Apartment would help with that. So when it came to casting, Wilder retained his Some Like a Hot collaborator, Jack Lemmon, to play C.C. Baxter, the company man who lends out his apartment to the higher ups and, and at his company in hopes of gaining some kind of promotion at the company. Uh, Wilder and Diamond, career I.L. IAL Diamond both said that Lemon was always the one they had in mind for this film. Lemon said he signed on to the film after Wilder pitching the idea and that he didn't even see a word of the script. Lemon would later state, I would have signed on if he said he was doing the phone book. It didn't matter. Lemon, as we said, was mostly known for his comedic characters at this point in his career. And while this is a comedy, it is very depressing and loaded with drama and very cynical in moments. And that was kind of new for Lemon. Uh, at this stage in his career. Shirley McLean was then cast as the elevator operator, Fran Kubelik, and McLean was becoming one of Hollywood's most popular comedic actresses at this time. Two years prior, she received her first Oscar nomination for her role in Some Came Running with Frank Sinatra. Um, after that, McLean would become good friends with the rest of the Rat Pack, even appearing in a cameo role in another 1960 film, Ocean's Eleven. Um, and Sinatra and company even taught her how to play Gin Rummy, and that will be important later on. <laughs> uh, the final name of the tr- main trio of the film, the final act, the char- character in the main trio of the film was not cast uh, until a little bit before filming. The reason being is because the role of Jeff D. Uh, Seldrick, uh, Fran's lover and boss at Baxter- Baxter's company, would originally go to actor Paul Douglas. He was a character actor of the era. Not well known. I think one of his biggest roles was in the original Angels in the Outfield. Um, Douglas, however, would unexpectedly die of a heart attack shortly before filming. I, I even heard oh, it was man. like two two days before production, like died like at breakfast table at the kitchen table for breakfast uh, in his Highwood home. And oh that's gosh. when uh, Wilder went to Fred McMurray, who had worked with Wilder previously uh, in Double Indemnity in 1944. But since then, McMurray had mostly been known for his family roles. Um, Wilder would offer him the role. But McMurray initially had doubts because of his current image. He had just signed a long-term deal at Walt Disney Pictures after the success of the 1959 film The Shaggy Dog. Finally, mm-hmm. because of his previous work with Wilder, McMurray decided to do the film. And that's kind of how all the cast came together and how the film came together um, 
to start shooting. So Thomas, what are what's one of your favorite scenes in this film? Well, one thing I do really like about this movie is it when we when we say kind of, you know, it's a dramedy. Yeah, it, it sneaks up on you because it, it really does. does present itself as like a, a slapstick comedy at the beginning. And I think one of the great and so Lemon does get to do some of his get to show off some of his like slapstick skills. And and I think one of the early places that's really on display is and I, and I also just kind of love the way it plays out dramatically, too, is the scene when he first meets Sheldrake because he's got a cold from having to spend yeah. the night. He, he basically got kicked out of his apartment the night before he had to sleep in the park uh, because he's been loaning his apartment out to all these executives at his yeah. company to all have affairs on their wives. And he's got a cold. He's like sneezing. He's miserable. And he gets called up to the CEO's office, the president of the yeah. company. And he's like, all right, I'm going to get my promotion. And you get there and, and it's Fred McMurray. And you're like, yeah. oh, this is a this fine, upstanding man is going to put an <laughs> end to all of the philandering. And he starts talking about, you know, I've heard rumors. You're lending this apartment out like we can't let bad apples spoil the bunch. Meanwhile, the whole time Lemon's got this like running, like sneezing gag and like he's got <laughs> tissues all over his pockets and like yeah. which ones are used and which ones are clean. And and it's it's like that i don't know the between the whole scene it's that marriage of like the early kind of slapstick physical yeah. humor but also this new kind of dark ironic humor that yeah. feels very fresh with yeah. mcmurray like circling around it and playing off the expectations of what kind of character you think fred mcmurray is going to play until you finally get to that moment where you realize that he's asking for exclusive rights to the apartment to cheat on his own wife. Yeah. <laughs> and it all plays out so well. And you, you kind of, you have that, the the part where he shoots the, the, he's got the saline nasal spray and he like shoots it off in the office. So <laughs> I, I think, I think that's, that's, that for me is the scene when you're watching this movie, that's the scene that makes you go like, Oh, we're a new, this is, this is, we yeah. just moved from the fifties into the sixties as far yeah. as like comedy goes. And the, the, type of stuff we're allowed to talk about because you know the the guys having affairs on their wives is is you know very kind of not explicit but it's mature but it, it's up until that point it's still kind of handled in this way like you would expect to see it in something in the in the in the 50s you know it's a yeah it's this rich executive palling around with a with a showgirl kind of thing and you're like oh yeah, yeah that's but just the way it's all presented in this scene makes you go like Oh, this is this is new territory for sure. Yeah, because it feels like the rest. I'll just feel like almost like they're not one night stands, but it's like it feels like, oh, these guys are all having a midlife crisis and they're they're all needing to like go find because one of them like finds the Marilyn Monroe type at the bar of like she's mm -hmm. she's like Marilyn Monroe. I got to <laughs> have the apartment and and McMurray's feels like, oh, no, no, this is going to be a long term thing, a long term affair, basically. And he does it. It's the kind of pivot where he's like, he calls about like, oh, any tickets to this musical or whatever, or I have tickets to this musical. Music man. This thing. Music man. And and then it's like, oh, he goes, uh, he goes, do you want the tickets for the music? He goes, oh, I thought you had. I thought you were going. He goes, no, 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 no. You you take them. Uh, but let me like, I have a I have a date to go to, um, and I possibly want to use the apartment basically, um. So yeah, it's it's the idea of like I think after that because I don't think it's in that scene, but when it's like 
oh, can we just get another key mates? We're not passing mm-hmm. it back so I can just show up whenever I want to is basically what it is. Like it's based on, hey, just help me like facilitate my my love my my love nest basically yeah. is, is what it is yeah and the the way the scene is set up is you know he's presented as this like savior almost he's like yeah he i'm is. gonna i'm gonna promote you and i'm gonna tell these guys to stop abusing you and then yeah. it's just like no i'm gonna tell these guys to stop abusing you but that's because i want I'm exclusive gonna, rights I to want abuse exclusive you. rights to it yeah exactly and it's like and again it's like you gotta think this moment in time it's it's you, you can see the underlings like the Ray Walstons and all those kind of characters like being this way. But you, you think, like, oh, but it's the top guy. And it's the mm-hmm. top guy fl- played by a Disney star, Fred McMurray. Yeah. It's <laughs> like the buck has to start stop somewhere. And it's, and like, it's like, no, no it doesn't really it stop. It just keeps going. It just keeps <laughs> going. It's that the almost the more powerful you get, the more you want to use that power to an extreme in an extreme way. And that's what mm-hmm. what, what Shell Drake's doing in this moment. And yeah, Lemon Lemon goes from being so excited to being like, oh no, it's just the same thing again. It's just like mm-hmm. I can't catch a break. And and again, talking about relatable, I feel like that's every person. Uh, I mean, especially during I think with COVID, it's like I see people with working where it's like, oh my god, no matter how far I get, there's always something else I have to deal with that like I still, I'm still selling myself out as I keep going in this corporate in this corporate mm-hmm. America. Um, I have no control over what I want to do um essentially because lemon lemon's character because this is like this is lemon's bread and butter yeah like it's a neurotic fact checker like and he's fantastic but yeah that scene is fantastic and i think why i love i to bring this in now about planting and paying off because it brings in here it's the key to the washroom and it's the mm-hmm. key to the apartment it's like so with the idea of planting and paying off to break this down for people plant so with the with the you, you plant an object or a specific thing that seems like it has zero kind of uh, importance to the story. So it's the washroom. It's the, the key to the washroom, the executive or the, the, the key to the executive washroom in this movie. Um, and then you have the key to the apartment and you set these keys up early to where you have that reveal later when lemon, when McMurray asks for the key and lemon hands him the key and he's like, oh, but this is the key of the washroom. He goes, oh, no, no, that's the right key. I quit. And it's mm-hmm. this whole big, like, oh, this it's the nice, like, kind of twist that reveal um, the little turn at the end right there. Or the next thing I think of is the mirror. It's Shreya McLean's mirror, yeah. where mm-hmm. um, you see that McLean has this broken mirror that's specifically hers. You see it early on when she's meeting McMurray. And then she leaves it at Lemon's apartment. And he gives it back to McMurray's oh like and this is whoever you're with left her mirror here just make sure she gets it back you get it back to her and at this point you know is that Lemon is in love Jack Lemon is in love with Shran McLean is that yeah Baxter is in love with Fran and he doesn't know this is her mirror and that she's the one having an affair with um with with Seldrake and, it's well, and that she's moment- also she's she's presented herself to him as someone who like does not buy into the office politics at that no. building at all she's just like she sees the truth to what it is basically yeah she, she, she sees, sees all the all creepy like she, she yeah, sees creepy all the dudes. creepy execs for who they are and so yeah it's like soul crushing to him when he realizes that she's having an affair with sheldrake and she's fallen for in his eyes possibly the worst one because he's mm-hmm. the one because he's it's not the fling it's the i want a long-term thing with you and now he's just like 
of all the people, this is the one that he picks. It's the one that I'm in love with that I've been, and we'll dive into this kind of thing. There's a little bit of a, a weird nice guy trope that I don't know if this aged well with this film. Uh, mm. But but it's there where he's like, oh, like this is the one I've always loved. And now this like horrible human being, she's fallen for the trap that she's always said that this is what the company's about. Like, it talks about her being like felt up on the elevator by all the executives and how she's kind of just made to be like this, this sex object for a lot of them that they're all trying to obtain in some way. Cause they, even the other guy was like, Oh, you hit the jackpot. You got the, the cubalic, the cubalic jackpot basically uh, when he's when the guy accidentally sees Fran in in the uh, in uh, Baxter's bedroom after she's uh, uh, had her suicide attempt. Uh, but no, the reveal of the mirror at the Christmas party as a whole. I love the Christmas party sequence because it, it really is. Everything's kind of coming to a head like and it's right when the holidays are happening where mm. everyone's about to be so depressed because yeah. it sets up. You have Miss Olsen, who's uh, Shell Drake's secretary who basically tells uh fran that you're not the first he's done this to me he's done this to every woman basically and when he ends it he just wants to keep you like in his life he just keeps you in his life if he ever needs you again and that sets up the train of like oh wait maybe i was right maybe every every one of these men are they are terrible and shell drake's just as bad and that sets up how like everything where Baxter's now depressed because he, he finds out that she is the one that Sheldrake's having an affair with. Uh, Fran now finds out that Sheldrake says many times before. And that sets up their kind of kind of bad Christmas Eve, essentially, where like Baxter's off getting drunk at a bar and Fran is off taking sleeping pills to, to commit suicide. So, yeah. So what's what's another? I feel like we're just kind of going around describing the whole movie um or at least i am but what's another scene that you you like in this film so one of my favorite aspects of this film and it's it's more of a comedic aspect but i just think the way it's it's kind of set up and paid off is so perfect is the the neighbors oh um, gosh yes the the dreyfuses and yeah. so any any of the kind of longer scenes with either of them so so the the overdose scene and uh, and then the scene where Mrs. Dreyfus brings some soup over. Both of those mm -hmm. are great. But it's just this idea that, you know, they keep talking about, oh, he was such a nice boy when he moved in. And, <laughs> Ivy but... League, Ivy League boy, <laughs> clean cut. But yeah, his so his neighbors think because all these other executives are bringing women back to his apartment at all hours of the night, every night, leaving empty bottles of, of booze outside. They've just decided he is like no good. And you can yeah. tell, you can tell like, especially Dr. Dreyfus, like Mrs. Dreyfus is just like, I don't like this guy. But Dr. <laughs> Dreyfus, you can tell is like so conflicted. Cause he's like, every time I interact with him, he seems like the, the like, nicest boy. He seems like a really friendly guy, but like his actions just speak for themselves. There's a <laughs> woman who is overdosed with sleeping pills in his room. There's another woman, laid out on the couch right now and, and another woman banging down the door like yeah and it's it's one of those you know it's one of those comedy of error things it's played yeah. out so well but um he's he's fantastic in it yeah he's like i can we the walls they're very thin we can <laughs> we can hear through the walls like the music's very loud yeah jack uh crucian who plays yeah. dreyfus is, is is fantastic but i, I and, and i just love the way i just love the way he like 
you know that, that idea of like the the old school doctor next door where he's just like springing into action he's like i don't like you i don't agree with anything you've done here but i'm gonna save this woman's life yeah because that's my job that's my job no but yeah he's he's like yeah yeah baxter he goes when you die which will probably be very soon is like what he says mm-hmm. <laughs> make sure you don't your body to science we would love and to study like, how's you your, how's your kidneys how's your kidneys <laughs> But then, like at the end, like he's still because because uh, uh, Dreyfus, like when it seems like Baxter's gonna be alone on New Year's, she's like, ah, oh, come over to the party. We got uh, we got these doc, these this doctor, this doctor got a bunch of physicians. Like, come see us. He goes, I'm good. Like even in that moment of after everything that's happened, Dreyfus still like he's a very warm character. Mm-hmm. I, I I think he he's for this movie that's so cynical in moments and can be cold for a comedy dreyfus is a character who brings just warmth to those depressing moments a lot yeah. of the time yeah and i think i think it's that relationship is also a great uh way to show that that baxter is also kind of a pushover it's not just at the office he's yeah. a pushover everywhere because like he could anytime he could be he like, could tell him. no <laughs> yeah yeah but he's just like they're like you're no good and he's like yeah yeah okay. you're right yeah, i'm sure. no good i'm a terrible <laughs> he's, person he just yeah. he can't argue he can't stand up for himself to anybody another scene i love it's when Lim, when, when baxter goes to the bar and picks up the uh uh the jockey's Marge, wife margie mcdougall who's uh, whose husband's in prison in cuba <laughs> She's like, what do you think about Castro? Like, it's like, it's just so funny. They've got a great line. I think it's when they're getting out of the, when they're getting back to the apartment, but she's, she's just talking about her husband who they've established early on as a jockey. And she's like, yeah. something about like four, she's just something about him being four foot six. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I miss all four feet, six inches of him or something like that. Yeah. Oh, when he gets out of prison in Cuba, he's going to come after you. Like she's, it's, she. Her, her, the actress name is Hope Holiday, and she's fantastic. And this like brief that, that that line in itself is when he's kicking her out, and she's basically just like my when my husband gets out of prison in Cuba, he's gonna come beat you up for not sleeping with me. <laughs> <It's> like, <what? laughs> You're like what? That doesn't make any sense. Oh man, yeah, it's 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 yeah. All those characters, like, cause those characters, cause I even like the one that's like the Marilyn Monroe type um mm-hmm. that does walston pick her up i can't remember which which walston character. picks her up and i like the, okay. the the switchboard operator that we just like are constantly yeah. hearing snippets of her talking shit about the, the <laughs> guy that she's sleeping with <laughs> and she he goes how about thursday she's like oh but the untouchables are on thursday <laughs> we'll watch the apartment gosh um yeah it's like it feels like it just feels like all the women just like no these guys are all just like are are just like schmucks is what it feels like Mm-hmm. And like all the women know these guys are just like, yeah, but it's a fun time. It's like what it kind of feels like. I think I it feels like McLean's Fran's the only one that I think truly kind of or at least I think truly falls in love with the guy. Mm-hmm. But I think that's because Shell Drake is the most manipulative one of all the guy of, of the men is that he knows how to make this woman fall in love with him. Basically, is that she he's high up on the on the power uh uh, structure or corporate structure not not pointing any fingers but also it's been shown that uh ceo is one of the top jobs to have if you are a uh psychopath so there you go (laughs) how does this movie like really capture christmas to you 
because I think it really captures like loneliness and that choosing the fan, <laughs> like loneliness at Christmas and, and the holidays. Yeah. I mean, I think definitely that, that, that scene of him at the bar is, um, you know, when, when it's finally just him and, and the jockey's wife and, and drunk Santa yeah. and, and you're just, yeah, it, it, it's, it feels like it lines up a little bit more with uh, with the the ones we did last year. Yeah. Um, but just kind of, yeah, that idea of like, hey, let's take all these normally very warm surroundings and show you how sad they can make people. Um, and it does the same thing with New Year's until, you know, it ultimately redeems itself. Yeah, but, I love uh, I love the New Year's Eve party where it's like it's the reveal where like McMurray like goes to her and, and Franz like and they're in their same booth. They're always in, and then like the camera pulls or uh, like uh, uh, pans left or whatever, and she's gone. And she's mm-hmm. it's a, it's a nice little reveal. Um, yet it really gets the party scenes down, the Christmas and the New Year's parties down really well. Um, but yeah, there is just, it had it creates a good atmosphere for all of those moments um, that I really love. All right, on onset life. So production of the film would finally begin in November 1959. So. There are a few, like, it's almost conflicting reports regarding the writing of this film, it seems. Um, hmm. Most most say Wilder and Diamond were very particular. Every, everyone says Wilder and Diamond were very particular about their script, making sure the actors kept to the script exactly. Diamond was apparently right off camera, following along with the script in hand, making sure everyone stuck to it. The person who would go off the script the most, however, was Charlie McClain. She would apparently do a lot of long takes of scenes thinking she would nail it. And they would tell her after she was done that she messed up and didn't have a the or an and in there requiring her to do it over again. Um, There's apparently one scene, one elevator scene they made her do over five times because she kept messing up one word or kept skipping one word. Oh, geez. Um, McLean, however, would say the script actually wasn't finished when they got to set and they were writing it during production, which is not what Billy Wilder says. Um, and that's why she would ad lib because they were still making it up as they went along. So the gin rummy scenes were added because she was learning how to play gin rummy because of the rat pack teaching her in Vegas, basically when she would go hang out with them. Um, but Wilder said that he only gave her the first 40 pages of the script when production began because he didn't want her to know what happens in the later scenes until they filmed them, which is why she thinks the script wasn't finished. So it's like, it's not sure. It's like, is Wilder lying to her? Or was the script actually, and when the script actually <laughs> finished? Or was he still writing it as they were going? It's not fully said. Um, one of the most famous scenes from the film in terms of a visual standpoint is the opening in Baxter's bullpen office. He's a small dot amongst the never-ending line of desk. Wilder uh, looked for inspiration from a silent film called The Crowd, by King Vidor that was has a very similar shot in it with the, with the massive desk. And I think it has a very similar plot line in terms of corporate America. Um, to capture the effect of the never-ending desk, desk, they use forced perspective. Um, at the front of the shot, they use regular-sized desk with regular-sized actors. And as the set went farther away from the camera, the desk and the actors got smaller so where by the end they're using very tiny desk and very dwarf, uh, dwarf actors basically is what it was. Oh really? Interesting. Yes. I also love that shot at the uh, at the Christmas party when he kind of walks through the Christmas party and it's like uh, so wild and dynamic so, uh, and then yeah. he just gets into like just desks and it keeps, it sticks <laughs> with him for a minute as he's walking past all these empty desks. 
Yeah, and they're all just having a blast. Um, uh, they also apparently used cardboard cutout figures that were operated by wires for some of the desk in the very far back of the shot. Wow, now very Kevin McAllister of them. Yes, very much so. I think I, I read that Cameron Crowe, he when he and there's because he did the book uh, in conversation with Billy Wilder. I think he did say I read an online was that uh, uh, he was trying to like get that same feel and Jerry Maguire when when Tom Cruise is like quitting um, the office. So yeah, I tried to cap with all of this, with all the people around blah blah and like had this built this huge set so we could see all these people and he's like and that because I wanted to capture that same feel that he does in the opening of of the apartment. And then I realized that it was actually very simple and it was actually a very small set. He just used the small desk to make it feel <laughs> much bigger. So in terms of the, the, the look of the film, the apartment was shot on Panavision, as we said, which was very different for a film of this nature. We talked about this in White Christmas of how movies this time were shooting on larger formats as a way to get people into the theaters instead of staying home and watching TV. So Panavision was usually used for epics, westerns, big films, not comedies, because it was just it was just not a, a thing they did. Um, but Wilder wanted to make it feel more large scale. Um, mm -hmm. Apparently on set, uh, Wilder and cinematographer Joseph Lachelle were at odds a lot. Lachelle had most has mostly come up through television and he wanted to shoot a lot of things in the only close ups while Wilder wanted to shoot everything wider. They must have patched things up because Lachelle uh, would shoot three more films for Wilder um, during his career. And as I said earlier, even though this is going out of style, Wilder just decided to shoot the film in black and white as a way to subvert the old Hollywood norms about sex and, and adultery and all these different things. For the big office Christmas party, they actually shot that on December 23rd, 1959. Oh, wow. So that everyone would be in the Christmas spirit. Um, <laughs> Wilder said he pretty much got the wide shots in one take saying, I wish it was always this easy. All I have to do is say action and stand back. According to Jack Lemmon, while on set, Wilder always had his associate producer, Doanne Harrison, by his side. Harrison was an associate producer for Wilder for many years. She um she worked she was associate producer or editorial supervisor, like heading up post production for I think fifteen of Wilder's films throughout his career. And Lemon said that Wilder never shot anything without talking to her first because he only wanted to shoot the stuff that he knew he was going to use in post and not shoot anything that was unnecessary that would be on the cutting room floor. There you go. And the film would finally wrap in February of 1960. And so we transitioned to Aftermath. And because they were able to cut in camera, as they say, where they're making uh, the cuts while they were shooting, they didn't have to edit that long. Um, so posts went fine, it seems like. And the movie was released in summer of 1960. So only four months after they finished filming, uh, the movie opened in New York on June 15th and then a week later in Los Angeles. The film received mostly positive reviews, but it seems like it almost bordered on mixed reviews. It was mostly positive, but there are a lot of people who were mixed by it because they were like, I don't get this comedy and drama thing. Can't just yeah. pick one genre. Uh, it seemed like it was too dark for a lot of them. Um, some critics also felt it was a dirty picture. Uh, one, <laughs> one reviewer, I think even went up to Wilder him, him went up to Wilder and told him you made a dirty film. Um, <laughs> and apparently even after the film got released, uh, Fred McMurray would be criticized by women on the street for playing this dirty cheating role in the film, uh, as Sheldrake. 
it was at this point in Hollywood, as we said, when mainstream movies were not were now kind of being considered dirty because they were challenging the rules of censorship as they were weakening. Another example of this came the exact same week the apartment opened in New York, and that was with Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. The same weekend these movies opened up in New York. <laughs> that is insane to me. Imagine being there at this point in time of like, it was like June 15th, apartment. June 16th, Psycho. Like, right around the block. It's kind of, it's insane. Even with the mixed reviews, however, the apartment would receive a total of 10 Oscar nominations at the 33rd Academy Awards. It would eventually take home five Oscars. Um, Wilder himself would take home three for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. He would be the first person to ever win all three Oscars in the same year, capping off one of the greatest runs in Hollywood history. Um, Wilder would never reach these heights again, only receiving one more Oscar nomination for the rest of his career. So the film's legacy, it seems like, would dwindle a little bit over the years because of how masterful Wilder's filmography is as a whole, as we talked about earlier. While Sunset Boulevard and Sun Like It Hot were deemed masterpieces, the apartment kind of became the forgotten masterpiece in his collection. Now it feels like, as we've talked about, is even more relevant in today's culture. In 2000, when looking back on the film, Lemon stated that it is the misuse of the American dream. Baxter had been taught that success was how far you could get in a company and how much money you could earn, and he's surrounded by these leeches who just use him to have affairs at his apartment. Uh, we know damn well that people in big business still behave like this. Uh, McLean would also state, there was always a sociopolitical undertone in Billy's work, and the apartment was his take on corporate tyranny. I remember the first preview we did. People weren't sure where the picture was a comedy or drama, but they recognized their own lives in it and how you're subjected to either selling your soul or trying to hold on to it as you climb the corporate ladder. Yep. And now we're 61 years later is where we're at with this movie. And still, as we've said, still just as relevant today. So Thomas, what worked about this movie? Um, you know, I'll say one thing that, that we haven't brought up yet. The, the theme yeah, I don't want to call it necessarily the score because it is it is an existing yeah beforehand piece, yeah, it was, but it's been reworked throughout uh, mm -hmm. to just kind of always be this underlying, like very bittersweet because the it, yeah. we presented it as it's it's kind of the song between Fran and Sheldrake. It's their song mm -hmm. at their restaurant, and for Christmas she gets him the record of it. Yeah. And then he proceeds to dump her and she tries to commit suicide. And kind of from then on that, that theme is like very, very bittersweet, but it is a, um, it's such a gorgeous piece and it's the the way that they continue to rework it throughout the film. It's almost like, uh, we've talked about it with the, with the long goodbye, you know, the way mm -hmm. they very creatively that's what I thought find about other ways to work this one song in. And that's, that's what they're doing with a lot of, of that piece in, in this one. Yeah. Cause it, it always so keeps coming back. Yeah. Yeah. It's so it's that, that part's really, really well done. And then casting. Yeah. I'd say like we were saying, this represents a transitional period. And I think these, these three people specifically, make that transition so apparent yeah. bringing not only their performances but their kind of off-screen personas what they represented because shirley mclean was was kind of you know this new hot actor yes but she was yeah. also like so weird you know <laughs> very very outspoken <laughs> and new age and spiritual and so yeah. she she truly was like new hollywood I mean, it's like, like, like a certain reviews like talked about how it's like it's the pixie haircut she has, which is very like not 
kind of what you were seeing in the movies at that point mm-hmm. of this pixie hairstyle woman who who is is essentially is a very se- I mean it's very very open about her uh sexual uh experiences basically that she talks about um mm-hmm. yeah I think the writing's amazing I think as I've said before the way it captures like a toxic work environment and kind of the 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 hierarchy of of a corporate uh the corporate ladder basically and what happens within that within mm-hmm. that structure um and how how easy it is to get caught up in this idea of like you know of goals you yeah. know if, if i do this i'll get this goal and never for a second looking at these being surrounded by other people who have accomplished those goals and never for a second thinking like oh am i going to turn into those people? am i <laughs> you know yeah is is, the, is making this happen going to turn me into those people and, and is that what i want for my life yeah and that's kind of what what baxter finally realized at the end he was just like i can go get a job anywhere i can go to any any town get any job i don't need to be here in this in this crazy city with all these kind of terrible people who work in this company i work at i don't so i'm moving out i'm getting rid of the apartments they never come and find me (laughs) like i don't want to do this ever again and 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 that's i think that's i think covid weirdly to to, to tie into kind of covid recently of, of this past year it's like I feel like a lot of people had that. Oh, a- am I doing what I want to do in my life? They begin to have doubts about the job they're in, about the things they're doing, and it-, it made them reassess kind of how they were. And I think a lot of people also learned what the work environment is like, of like how you can put all these years into this company, and they'll turn you turn your turn their back on you because you're not part of the plan now. Yeah. Well, not you know, I'm, I I may or may not have a friend who was in a situation where uh, it was very quickly revealed that, that most of the higher ups at the place he was working were entirely morally corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it is, it is so easy to lose sight of it. You know, yeah. when, when, when these goals are laid out in front of you, uh, you're, you're not always clock. And then these people are presented as positions of power, not always clocking like, Oh, are they behaving the way that a human yeah. being should, but yeah. you can't have that awakening of like, Oh my God. I, I don't want to be like anybody here. So why am yeah. I here? Lemon uses a good term. It's the misuse of the American dream mm-hmm. of how like this is the underbelly of it. And I think that's what Wilder was always so fantastic at doing is for a guy who was who was who was who was not American, who was European. Um, and he was able to like look at America and be like, oh, you're talking about the bright picket, the white picket fence and the, the nice house. But what's underneath that? like yeah. it's it's david all lynch before guys, david lynch <laughs> yeah all these guys leave their white picket fences and hop yeah. on the train and then they need an apartment in new york to carry yeah. on their their se- on, secret lives to have their second their second life so yeah um but yeah i think all that works i think it's fantastic did anything not work in this film i can definitely see what you're saying although i do think they they do a decent job of establishing the chemistry between the two of them that it doesn't completely feel like she's just like, Oh, this guy saved yeah. my life. I'm in his apartment. Kind of, it doesn't feel Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. They've, they've, they've got a rapport. They've got kind of an obvious attraction to each other. It's just that she's hung up on, on shell Drake. So yeah. it, it, it could be a lot worse and, yeah. and uh, a lot more, a lot more modern films have handled that. Worse. <laughs> worse. Less well. Yes. Yeah. No, I, 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 that moment's fine. I had the part that I was like, Ooh, that's odd. It's when he's when they're walking out of the uh, 
out of their job and and he's like trying to he's asking her out to go on the music oh, w- w- that he knows all of her yes yes, yes. that scene does that's, when he's like i looked up your entire file and she's like yeah. oh that's cute yeah that that one is weird <laughs> he's like oh he is like, he goes oh yeah you know you are she's like he's like oh yeah like you live over there and she goes how do you know where i live oh i know i know who you live with i know how long you've been there i've known this and he's I just like i think it's i think that part is meant to show us more of like how seriously he takes his job yes yes but, but it, it, i think it, we needed an earlier example of him like running into somebody and being able same to exact thing. Like, yeah, name yeah. off those same details about them uh i think it would work a lot better if they had pulled that if they had done that i agree because I mean, he gives like the facts or oh you can stretch this out from this place to this place and and it would reach across the ocean or whatever he has like facts like that but it's not about other people it's just about mm facts and about about numbers and this is like oh yeah i know your social security number i know when you got your like uh your appendix out and she's like oh well don't tell the boys how you know that <laughs> they might question it and like it was just like oh he kind of comes off as a stalker right here mm-hmm. and she's not reacting it's like oh well he's just a nice guy it's like what it kind of comes off so that's like the one part where like if you take that out i think the rest of the movie really works with that character yeah i get that so that's my one thing that's my one thing all right on to alternate universe cast i talked about paul douglas as um as uh shell drake uh so two names so i have a dr dreyfus and a fran one one is one is more just hearsay and it was like i'll, I'll go uh, dr dreyfus is the one i'll go first so dr dreyfus the studio wanted groucho marx to play <laughs> baxter's next door neighbor as the doctor Oh my god! But Wilder refused to cast Marks because he wanted someone with more dramatic chops. Um, and Jack Christian, who I, I didn't say earlier, was nominated for an Oscar for his role in this movie. It was the only Oscar he ever got nominated for was for his role in the apartment. Um, so for Fran, she was never in the running, but she mentioned after the movie this is a character she would love to have played. At a party after the film, Marilyn Monroe told Wilder that the, she wished she could have played Fran is what it was because mm. this is a point in in monroe's career where she's been trying to take more serious roles and she probably felt i've read a lot on monroe where she probably felt very that character of friend was very relatable to her mm. of dealing yeah. with men in a workplace and and kind of the, the patriarchal system and how she's a woman trying to that's caught in the middle of it so i think yeah. I, don't, I don't know how she would have been with it but I can see why she wanted to play it. Well, they they had a very interesting friendship, working relationship. Wilder and her did. The two of them. Yeah, because like everyone says, like oh, they hated one another. I was like, yeah, but they made two films, so like yeah, and you that's you can go back and you can find all these accounts that Wilder had such a tough time with her. And, yeah, but then you can films. also you can also go back and find all these quotes from him that's like I wouldn't change a thing if I yeah if if you asked me to you, Marilyn had to be in those movies yeah and, like, um, she, and she was a genius so it's like yeah it, it, it's it's so hard to like because they said oh like I one thing I read like, oh he was so bitter with Marilyn Monroe that's why he he put that character that's the Marilyn Monroe type in there to like get back at her I was like no I think he just probably did because he thought it was funny like yeah. and probably knowing Monroe's sense of humor she might have thought it was funny because I don't think that character is written off full. I don't know if she's written fully as like a, a dumb character. I just think she knows. And we talked about this a little bit with like the, the Monroe type character in white Christmas, uh, a few, a few weeks ago, like that, that was kind of happening a lot where you had this kind of 
Monroe like character. Well, and I'm, I'm sure it was happening. I mean, think of, think of the way we see pop culture manifest these days. I'm sure it was happening in real life, which you'd go out to the bar and see four women at the bar who had done themselves up like Monroe and were trying yeah. to do the breathy voice. Um, yeah. And so I, I imagine they were more just kind to trying to reflect that change yeah. in pop culture. She was the most popular person on earth at that point. And so I'm sure there are plenty of people just like putting it on to to try and appear attractive. I agree completely. It's like the 80s with Madonna. Like it's like that that happens where like everyone tries to dress or it's the it's what's the thing in fat fast times at Regiment High off like we have three Pat Benatars here, that one, that one, and that one. <laughs> like like it's very that's just pop culture. Um so yeah. So moving on to film facts. Um it was the last fully black and white film to win best picture until 2011's the artist schindler's list would win in 1993 but there were color sequences in it so that's why there's there's red and there's also the the kind of the ending is all in color uh but yeah think about that so it was the last film to to win that was black and white shout out shout out the artist right shout out the artist (laughs) (laughs) oh no Uh, we just lost some listeners it was also the first best picture winner to reference previous best picture winners because it's the scene it's a weird weird fact i found out it's the scene when he's trying to watch grand hotel mm-hmm. on the tv and he's just like <laughs> and now greta garbo john barrymore lionel barrymore joan crawford uh wallace berry uh, in the grand hotel but, but now, first oh, but first <laughs> oh, we're from our sponsor uh yeah. and that comes back later but, for, but second or but first a word from our alternative sponsor <laughs> so there's that one they referenced that because Grand Hotel won, I think, 1932, 33. And they also make a rest reference to The Lost Weekend, which is also Billy Wilder, which also won Best Picture, where I think Ray Walston says, oh, they had Lost Weekend together is what it was. Um, talking about McLean or Fran and, and Baxter. Mm-hmm. The, the film would later be adapted to the Broadway stage uh, in 1968 by Neil Simon and a few other people called Promises, Promises um which became kind of a big hit on broadway um last kind of film fact i have uh jack lemon was really hit when 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 the brother-in-law punches him in the face uh no, really? punch- yeah so apparently uh, uh lemon didn't move the right way and he moved right into the punch is what it was so yes that was apparently a thing that happened on set all right moving on to story questions do you have any story questions what what do they do after this what's next yeah, I do. Do you feel they move out of New York? I don't know. I think they can make it together. I hope they. You know what? I hope. I hope they stay in that apartment and become friends with the Dreyfuses. Yeah, the Dreyfuses. I, I just, like, I just want, I just want Baxter and the Dreyfuses to be friends because I think they the, would get along. I would. I think Mr. Dreyfus. Oh, he was such a playboy. He he had women over mm-hmm. overnight, but then now Fran showed. Then Fran showed up, and she really, she really took a hold of him and really changed him. Like that just makes Fran look good in the, in the neighborhood that she was there. She was able to kind of tame the the beast mm-hmm. known as CC Baxter. <laughs> um, yeah, I hope that too. And they just they they become a gin rummy team. You know, they just play gin rummy all the time. Like because <laughs> you know, like yeah, if they if they stayed there, it's like it's they're definitely having card night, like playing bridge. The Dreyfuses and and uh and Fran and Baxter are playing bridge on like Tuesday nights or whatever in the apartment. What happened? Here's a question. We haven't talked about her. What happens to Miss Olson, his secretary? Cause she, she turns, 
she turns him in. Like she has lunch with the with his wife, with Sheldrake's mm-hmm. wife, turns him in, and we never hear from him again of what happens to her or 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 the or the marriage or whatever. Um yeah, what happens to Miss Olsen? Because Miss Olsen's a character where like she definitely realizes she's kind of smarter than or she she's she should not be in the job she's in, basically. She is she is right. she is better than just being this guy's secretary because she's basically having to deal with his like she has, she has a phenomenal line when she talks about how like uh you're or you're fired so oh I left four years or you fired me four years ago you just kept me around so I got to watch the new models walk in every time so mm. ba- it's it's a very like she's realized oh I've been here as you just like I was kind of the first one or one of the first ones or maybe she wasn't and then I just had to watch you recycle these women over and over again i've done nothing about it and then finally she does something about it um right and i hope she found a better job that's all i hope for i hope mm-hmm. all of them found better jobs <laughs> it's basically it's basically the thing <laughs> and so uh, so so are they insurance is what it is is that is that the is that mm-hmm. the uh yeah that's funny because that's what mcmurray did in double indemnity he was also insurance <laughs> he was life i just that's realized true. that he was life insurance all right let's move on to awards the Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actress, and the scenes that kills it. All right. I think it's the jockey's wife. <laughs> yeah. Hope Holiday. Yeah. Hope Holiday. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. That's that's the one that I think for the the two, three scenes she's in, I think she really nails it. Wow. Hope Holiday. Still alive. Hey. Nine, 91 years old. Good for you, Hope. So Hope Holiday, Beatrice Strait Award winner. Annie Pox X Factor Award, supporting actor and actresses, the most memorable. I got to side with the Academy on this one. <laughs> Jack Christian, Christian, mm-hmm. Dr. Dreyfus. Yeah, I, th- I think he's amazing. I, say, I think he brings such warmth to this movie in a film that for a, a dramedy could become cold pretty quickly. Yeah, he he's able to kind of bring some light hearted moments in the middle of the darker moments in the film. There, there are, you know, it's his whole thing is, is he says, be a mensch, a human yeah. being. And, and he really he and his wife really feel like the only human beings in this movie. They um, do. Yeah, so it's great. It's always great when they do show up. They haven't been corrupted by the, the corporate system like these. They're, they're people who want, they naturally want to help people mm-hmm. is basically what it is. They, they both naturally want to help people. All right. The Gene Hackman MVP award, person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. Who do you have? This one's tough. Yeah. This one's tough. Is it Wilder? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. It's it's a weird, it's tough simply because I feel like all of them make the movie in some way. Like, I think McLean brings this specific energy to it. I think Lemon brings this specific energy to it. Um, you'd even argue, argue McMurray brings a specific energy to it, but I, w- I wouldn't put him in, in, in kind of this role. But I think kind of always the 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 default choice is that if everything works so well, it's probably the director. <laughs> well, and it's it deserves uh, it. You know, a lot of people are doing their own styles, like we've like we've yeah. been saying. It's 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 a blending of a lot of different comedic and dramatic styles of acting. And so that is that is the director's job is to yeah. be able to kind of make that all work to juggle you, it you, to, to have it to keep it off in the air and not have it yeah. fall down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and to make it feel like all these people are in the same movie. These people who are yeah. coming from a lot of different schools of acting, even to the point of the of the hope holidays of the world who are coming in with those type scenes. They're just like kind of out there. And then all the other Ray Walstons of the of the of the world 
yeah, he really has to balance the tone of everything and balance the tone of the genres we're doing here. Like it's, you're making it comedy, you're making it dramatic and that's not really done at this point in time. And you kind of have to do it all. Like he, he was, he was from the school of Ernest Lubitsch who we've, who did to be or not to be, which we've talked about on the show. Um, And that's another film that's very comedic and also dramatic. And he Mm -hmm. is kind of the descendant of that style. And I think he does it to an even greater, greater, greater deal, basically. Um, so yeah, I would side with Billy Wilder on this one as well because he, he he holds all three top positions: writer, director, producer. Everything about it works. All right, final questions for the movie. Uh, recast it. If it was remade today, who would you cast in these roles? I think top three. If you want to do a Doctor Dreyfus, you can try. That's the only one I have for sure. Oh, Doctor Dreyfus. Yeah. <laughs> okay, go ahead. That's that. That's a Michael Stuhlbarg role if I've ever seen one. Oh, you're right. That's a good pick. <laughs> that is a great pick. He's gonna he's gonna show up in our character actor Hall of Fame that we oh, yeah, just we're, started we're, brainstorming. We're creating. We're creating. Um. Okay. So let's go. Let's go. Uh. Sheldrake. We do a Sheldrake. Okay. I'm trying to think of somebody that. I mean, if this were 15 years ago, I would have cast Tom Hanks in that role. He's getting a little too old for I it. I would say. I yeah. I, I I like that pick. You know who I think. I don't know why this came to me. You can hate it or not. Hugh Jackman. Okay. I could, yeah, I could see Jackman. I feel like Jackman, because he's also just a very nice guy. Yeah. Well, like overall. And he doesn't, he never really plays that role. He's done it like once before, but he always kind of plays like the good guy. He's mm-hmm. the superhero. He's, he's the greatest showman. Like he's the music man on Broadway or whatever. Like he is that guy. And you're like, and I could see, you'd see him making that turn. I think you could see him make that turn. Mm-hmm. So we got we got we got Sheldrake. How Baxter. Or let's go Baxter. Let's go Baxter. Baxter, I've got Bill Hader. That makes sense. Yeah. I think he could I think he could pull off that character and also he's he's someone that we know is a lover of, yeah, of old movies. Classic cinema. So I think he'd just have a blast with it anyway. Um Fran. Okay. Interesting. Okay, to to backtrack, uh-huh. would Bill Hader be too old for this? Yeah, movie? maybe. All right, tell you what, we're doing this 10 years ago. I'm going Bill Hader, Tom Hanks. <laughs> okay, 10 years ago. Okay, what's the, this is 10 years ago. Fran. Is it Amy Adams? Yeah, I could, I could see that for sure. Or the Jennifer Lawrence. I feel like 10, 10 years ago, we're in that Jennifer Lawrence period. Uh, God, are we really 10 years removed from the Jennifer Lawrence period? Maybe not that, not, not, but like Winter's Bone, I think it's 2010. Yeah, and I think Summer um, Lines is twenty thirteen. No, I like I like Amy Adams. I Amy Adams too, because I'm trying to think of people who are comedic but also do drama. So we're gonna do Bill Hader and Amy Adams, the romantic comedy duo, and mm-hmm. Tom Hanks is the. You know, this reminds me of now that we're saying this. This is this is. Have you seen Shop Girl? Hmm. It's like Jason Schwartzman, Clara Danes, and. Steve Martin. Steve Martin, yeah. It's a very similar premise, actually, now that I That's think true, about yeah. it. <laughs> because why, why it reminds me of that is because Steve Martin wanted Tom Hanks to play the Steve Martin role. Mm-hmm. But Tom Hanks is like, That's not me. <laughs> That's not me. I'm going to wait until the circle <laughs> to play that role. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we'll go with Bill Hader, Amy Adams. It's. I feel like that's the more oscar Beatty movie is, or, is the, or if you'd say 10 years ago bill Hader can't carry a film then paul rudd paul rudd makes sense to me i feel yeah. like paul rudd i bill Hader works 
I, I feel like Bill Hader. Bill Hader's the Ray Walston, is what it is. He's the Ray Walston of the group. <laughs> hey, buddy boy. <laughs> he might be too young, though. I, I like Paul Rudd. I like Paul Rudd, Amy Adams, Tom Hanks, rom com, Oscar Beatty. Could be it could be prestige, could be drama, could be comedy movie. I'm cool with that. I'm cool, cool with that. Um, all right, next question. Does this film fit with any other genres besides Christmas? Yes. I, I think so. <laughs> it's a New Year's film. New Year's film. It's a it's a it's a workplace workplace drama. Mm-hmm. It's a social satire almost. It's a I lot agree. of it's it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, rom com. It's 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 uh yeah. I agree all that completely. Um so how does this film fit with the Christmas genre? Um I, I do think it's a little bit closer to last year's yeah. yeah to Christmas adjacent and also the idea of kind of weaponizing the Christmas spirit a, a little bit you know mm-hmm. ultimately it does play out in the end it does you do have the self-reflection and and realizing who's important to you and, and mm-hmm. realizing where your priorities lie but as far as Christmas itself goes you've got like a suicide attempt on Christmas yeah. you know it's it, so so I think it, it it does fall closer into those kind of movies that 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 recognize the Christmas the whole Christmas spirit and yeah. and lean more into the dark side of it. Yeah. I just wanted to pick a movie that had that kind of captures that week in between Christmas and New Year's where you're just yeah. like what do I do with my life right now? <laughs> yeah, and I, and I know when, when we were talking about picking you, it also said like, "Oh, we should do a New Year's movie," and I, d- I yeah. think this one does represent with the way that New Year's is used here. Yeah, is you know truly it's new here. It's a time for change. Uh, yeah, and, and that that is the end of the film is you know hashtag New Year New Me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very much like it's like you don't have this ending. It's like you, do you have when Harry met Sally ending at New Year's? Mm-hmm. Not because it's the same thing. It's like. Think about this, like when Harry met Sally. Spoiler alerts for when Harry met Sally, guys. Uh, but like, it ends with Billy Crystal running to go find Meg Ryan, and this movie ends with Shreya McLean running to go find Jack Lemon. Like, it's very much in that same vein. Different mm-hmm. places, but they're all like, I have to go be with this person on New Year's Eve. This is who I truly want to be with, not alone at my apartment like Billy Crystal, but not. Not with this man that is despicable, Fred McMurray. Like no matter what happens, he's gonna be the same. Um, yeah. in, in three months, whatever. If that, he'll drop me and go for the next next woman, who's the elevator operator. So yeah, so I, I think it captures that of like who you want to be with, and those those moments in your life that it captures that very well. Um, mm-hmm. And the Christmas is kind of just the, I mean, it's the tinsel. It's the thing you. It's the thing you put on. Like I mean. If you put this movie at any other time of year, does it work? I mean, I think I think it could still work. Like, I think you, you yeah, it just enhances all of yeah. the emotions. That, I agree. We, we talked about this last year, but Christmas just like, you know, turns everything up to 11, basically, uh, yeah. as far as like good or bad emotions can go. Yeah, so. I agree. And I think this is the this is the ba- this is the loneliness of, of, it, of it all, the depressed mm-hmm. part of it all. All right. So final questions of the Christmas genre. So what are some movies we didn't discuss this time that you think we should shout out? That you want to shout out right here? Another kind of classic old Hollywood one that I love, and we've talked about it briefly a couple of times on the podcast, but I love Christmas in Connecticut. And um, 
I don't think it gets quite enough play. It's like it's like second tier as far as like Christmas classics go. And yeah. like maybe you'll catch it on TCM once, but it's yeah. a really fun one. And it's one of those like comedy of errors. Like, you know, if you like, you know, Frasier, um, it's one of those like <laughs> all these people and all these people in one house. And there's like three different lies going and everyone trying to keep the lies straight. I love those. I, I absolutely love that kind of movie. So, so Christmas in Connecticut's always a blast for me. And it, it's one I always kind of push to put on and, and my family every year will go like, which one is that again? I'm like, <laughs> it's this one. <laughs> So Barbara Stanwyck one. She's pretending to be Martha Stewart. Yeah, I I didn't expect you. If you like Frasier, you'll yeah. like this. Movie. I think that's I think that's the most like modern representation of like every every week. It was like, oh, this person's coming over, and we told we told him that we're blah blah, but we told her that we're blah blah, and you have to you have to keep it straight. Which one? Who's who's keep, blah blah, and who's keep, the other blah blah? It, yeah, keep it all in the air. And we're gonna run <laughs> into the kitchen and try and get our story straight real quick. And no one could ever hear what they were talking about in the kitchen. No one in the living room could ever hear them yelling at each other in the kitchen. What's up with that? <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Um, one else shout out. Another Barbara Stanwyck movie I'll shout out. And that's Remember the Night. Also with Fred McMurray. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe also who I think it was Preston Sturgis that wrote it. Yeah. Preston Sturgis wrote it. Funny enough, edited by uh, uh, Duane Har- Harrison, who was uh wilder's uh editorial supervisor did not know that shows you how things are connected but yeah that's one that i think it's like a great rom-com set around christmas stanwick's amazing murray's amazing um worth the watch i think it's currently on if you have tcm a lot of great tcm stuff this holiday season and probably going off at the end of the month if you're listening right now in december so go check those out i feel like christmas connecticut's also on there it usually is they usually have it last one Last one I'll throw out is is a classic. I I know plenty of people who count it as the best, but we d- we didn't bring it up this month. Is uh, shop around the corner? Yeah, I was so gonna say that too. Throw yeah, out a, shop- throw out another Jimmy Stewart one. Shop around. I thought about like should we do shop around the corner to end it? And I was like, that's two Jimmy Stewart movies in a month. Well, people I got hate no problem it. with it. I got no problem <laughs> with it. But but yeah, I love shop shop around the corner. Is is yeah. great. A little Christmas rom com, not not as not as dramatic as uh, as Wonderful Life. You know, if you're looking for a, some lighter Jimmy Stewart yeah. fare, but not as comedic as You've Got Mail. That's the thing. That's the <laughs> other thing. Because <laughs> that when you watch Shop Around the Corner, that's a movie. Talk about workplace comedy. When you watch that, I was like, this is a workplace sitcom, mm-hmm. but it's just set in, in Budapest, and they're selling yeah. shoes. That's all it is. It's like it's like. It, it, but it's it's just a little more dramatic because I'm like everyone has a distinct personality and they all work together. I mm-hmm. think it's I think it's phenomenal. Directed by Ernest Lubitsch, who we've discussed on the show uh, just now. So it, it has that again that dramatic and comedic, mostly comedic, um, but it has a sweet kind of charming touch to it. Um, okay, so what did you learn this month, Thomas, when talking about the Christmas genre? You know, I I, I could going into this month, I knew that. Uh, Christmas Carol was a heavy influence, but I really, it wasn't until we started digging into everything that I was like, wow, every, all roads, all Christmas roads lead back to Christmas Carol. Yeah. And it's wild. You know, even if you just start flipping through the, all these Hallmark and Netflix and lifetime offerings, how many like ghosts of Christmas past ghosts of boyfriends past ghosts of girlfriends. <laughs> girlfriends past. Past. Like, yeah. It, it's very much like it, at the end of the day, what, what Dickens, the Christmas Carol really captures is, what is it like or or 
what can you do to be a better human being? Mm-hmm. I think that's the point. It's that that's what Scrooge does. The other day is that he realizes I need to cherish Christmas, not just on Christmas, but every day of my life. And yeah. to go to the apartment to tie it back in. It's like, what, what is the, uh, what is Dreyfus says, be a minch, be a human being. And I think that's the key that goes all the way back from Dickens with, with Christmas Carol to now. I think when you're making a truly true Christmas film, it's about what, what can you do to better someone else? and pass that spirit of Christmas along to someone else. And, and that's, that's kind of why I learned too is the same thing. It's, like it's, it's very much when, when you, when you really dive into that, that's what's kind of the core of a really good Christmas movie mm-hmm. is what it's like to be a human being. Is that everything on, on uh, the apartment and the Christmas movie genre? For this year? So. Here comes, here comes 2022, 2022, baby. We'll see how it's going to go. <laughs> get ready get your new, new year resolutions in um we'll see we'll see you again in two years for christmas movies movies probably um so yeah so next month this is the ch- suggestions we get we got from a listener we're doing parody month next month we're gonna be talking about some of our favorite parody movies we're gonna be doing at the moment it's the plan is monty python the holy grail top secret thomas's pick for next month <laughs> austin powers international man mystery and to top it all off we haven't done a director in a while, it feels like. So we have to do a director. And the one that just jumps to mind, the king of parody, the king of spoofs, and that is Mel Brooks. So when we talk about Mel Brooks, get your parody movies in, watch a lot of great ones. Over, when you're done watching your Christmas movies this holiday season, start your parody stuff. So that's all we have here on this episode. If you're a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to Sin Nation Podcast so you stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us reviewing whatever platform you listen to the show on. That can be your Christmas present to us. You know, <laughs> leave leave a little review. That's yeah. a, that, I think that's a that's a really nice way. Think back on you know take listen to Dickens. Think back on <laughs> podcast episodes of podcasts pa- past. Think about, you know, what you liked about past episodes and then think about podcast future and what you'd want to hear from the show and leave us some feedback with all of those things. Do that in your present right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and finally, don't forget to like us, on, like us and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all that jazz. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.